This message was originally given at Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. Let's listen to the Word of God from our Sunday morning service. Good morning. I appreciate the privilege and opportunity to to preach, and I appreciate the prayers that have been prayed for me and ultimately for you. Uh, So if you're... If you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been studying through the book of Ephesians. Uh, Last week, we saw that according to Paul's teaching in Ephesians, that the first order of business for wise living is examining the way you use time. From Paul's instruction, we can say that your use of time either displays wisdom investing in a future kingdom or folly squandering valuable opportunity. Uh, the days are evil, and all things are being summed up in Christ. He is ushering in a perfect, sinless, and unshakable kingdom, a kingdom where He reigns supreme, where folly and death are no more, a kingdom by <clears throat> a kingdom put in order by the knowledge and wisdom of God permeating every inch of creation, beginning with His people made after His likeness. Well, if investing in time wisely is the first order of business for wise living, the second order of business is how this investment is made possible. Uh, I know that Jason said that we are going to be talking about worship, and we are, but the message isn't primarily about worship. It is one aspect of this text. And what this text presents to us is a matter in the question of internal stimulus. Are we being carried along by what fuels the world or by the inner control of the Holy Spirit? This is the question our passage presents to us today. If you're not already there, we are in Ephesians chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 15. You can find it on page 919 in the Pew Bible. And if you don't have a a Bible that you can call your own, uh, you can take one of these Pew Bibles for free. You can consider it our gift to you. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Once you've found your place in the Scriptures, I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. This is the word of the Lord to you. Pay careful attention then how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, the Scriptures tell us that You are the one who is high and lifted up 
One who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. And you've said that you dwell in the high and holy place, yet also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So Lord, most high and most holy, it is our prayer today that we see you high and lifted up so that we would have a true estimation of our lowly position and as a result result rejoice in our king and enjoy afresh the blessing of your renewing presence with us lord we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word in and for the name of jesus christ amen you can be seated As I mentioned before, the question presented by verses 18 through 21 is a question of by what or whom we are being controlled. What is the dominant motivator behind what you do? This is connected to the command in verse 15 to pay careful attention to how you walk because what controls and motivates and invigorates you will determine whether you are walking according to wisdom or according to folly. In fact, verses 15 to 21 serve as a transition and introduction to more instruction on wise living, particularly in the context of everyday relationships. And everything about those relationships is affected by what is filling you. We'll see two contrasting influences available to humanity, and each one has drastically different results. Look at me with verse Uh, 18. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. Paul is continuing his use of contrasting imperatives to help clarify what he means. The first imperative tells us what not to do. Don't get drunk with wine. And there is no better image Paul could have used to make this point Uh, If you are called to pay attention to how you walk, then drunk is the last thing you want to be. Uh, It's pretty simple. Drunk people don't walk straight. Uh, If Nick Morris pulls you over and he smells alcohol on your breath, he's probably going to examine your walk. Why? Because he knows whatever's in you will be proven in how well or how poorly you walk the line. Paul is not merely, though, condemning drunkenness here. He's condemning what drunkenness represents. Paul has mixed the metaphors of darkness and folly throughout chapters 4 and 5, and he now adds the metaphor of drunkenness to the picture to show that being drunk with wine represents living according to the old manner of life in which we all once lived when we walked in darkness and folly. And the connection makes sense. People who get drunk generally get drunk at night. So what's the result of getting drunk? Verse 18 tells us, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living. Now, your version likely has debauchery. Uh, The CSB has done some interpreting for us because the meaning of of debauchery is not immediately apparent to people in our day. It's not something we often use, a word that we use often. Uh, And actually, it's not used often in the New Testament. The word is used three times here in Ephesians 
in 1 Peter 4, 4 and Titus 1, 6. And in both of those cases, it's used to describe a reckless, wild, and disorderly person completely out of control. Uh, there's a, a fitting irony with this metaphor. The drunk conti- continually consumes alcohol, of course, but, but they also consume the people around them. Uh, their uncontrolled appetite leaves a wake of destruction, and in the end, they even consume themselves. In defining debauchery, one writer says that the one guilty of this sin not only wastes his goods, but loses his time, degrades his faculties and abilities, and eventually consumes himself. Philo, a a Jewish philosopher, not a Christian, but in this way, he, he describes it this way, drinkers pass their life far from home and hearth. They are enemies of their parents, of their wives, of their children, enemies also of their country. They are also their own enemies. A life spent on drink and licentiousness is a menace for everyone. And of course, if you know anyone or have been anyone that has struggled with drunkenness, you likely know that this is true. But instead of this, Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. Be filled by the Spirit is a short phrase, but brevity does not equal triviality. In fact, what is being communicated here has incredible significance for every moment of your life, even unto eternity. So what does Paul mean by be filled by the Spirit? At first glance, we might gloss over. was originally given at Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta. Got some... Background music, sorry. Uh, at first glance, we might gloss over this, um, thinking, you know, we, we understand that when a person believes on Christ, that the Spirit comes to dwell in the believer. That is true. In Christian circles, that's common knowledge. But there's nothing common about this. Uh, some translators have uh, translated it to be filled with the Spirit, suggesting that the Spirit is the content of the filling. Um, this is consistent with the scriptures, uh, other scriptures on the indwelling of the Spirit, but in this case, it would be a strange way for Paul to say it. Uh, here, the Spirit is actually not the content, but the means by which the filling occurs. The Spirit is the one making the filling happen, or making it possible. But then that leaves us with, leaves us with two questions. Well, who's doing the filling, and who or what are we being filled with? It is true that the Spirit indwells believers, but we must remember that the person and work of the Spirit are never separate from the person and work of Christ or the person and work of the Father. The the Trinity, the, the Godhead, they are always distinct, but never separate. In a nutshell, Ephesians and the rest of the New Testament Scriptures make clear that Quote, believers are to be filled by Christ by means of the Spirit with the content of the fullness of God. The indwelling Spirit is the means by which Christ comes to make His dwelling in our hearts. And because Christ is the fullness of God in bodily form, the church then becomes the dwelling place of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in all the fullness of the triune God. That's why it's not trivial.
One writer explains it this way. When the Son and the Holy Spirit are sent into hearts, they come in person and inseparably. Only the Son and the Holy Spirit are sent into hearts. The Father is not sent, quote-unquote, but He comes with the Son and the Holy Spirit into the saints. St. Athanasius explained, when the Spirit is in us, the Word also who gives the Spirit is in us. And in the Word is the Father. This author continues, by grace, the whole Trinity dwells in the soul of the just. Now, we could stop here and meditate on the glories of this reality for weeks. So I don't want to in any way diminish what Paul is is getting at here. I can't even begin to, to describe just how enormous this is. But what is so striking is that Paul doesn't go on and on with lofty speech about the glories of this reality. No, Paul emphasizes the significance of the Spirit's filling by the results that that filling produces. So what are the results of the Spirit's filling? Well, when you're filled with wine, it leads to reckless living. But when you are filled by the Spirit, it produces four ongoing results within the church. Now, there is a a table that hopefully we can get put up that contrasts the difference between the influence of alcohol and the influence of the Spirit. Um, If we can't, that's okay. We know the Spirit produces, uh, excuse me, wine produces debauchery and reckless living, but the four things that the Spirit's filling produces is speaking, singing, giving thanks, and submitting. Speaking, singing, giving thanks, and submitting. We'll look at each one, but I've grouped speaking and singing together because they deal with the topic of congregational worship. So if you're keeping notes, I would call the the first of the two results, that is speaking and singing, wisely directed worship from the heart. Wisely directed worship from the heart. Let's look at the first result of the Spirit-filled life in verse 19. First result is speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It is clear by the one another language and the, and the context with the second result that public worship is in view. He, he, Paul has our gatherings in his mind with these instructions. Uh, he's not, you know, by saying we are to speak to one another, he's not suggesting that we stop singing and only speak to one another using scriptures and song lyrics, but he's emphasizing the mutual edification and fellowship that is, uh, will be present in our gatherings. As John Stott points out, Christians love to sing both to God and to each other. The Psalms have been the church's songbook for centuries. Israel has sung it. The church has sung it. And yet Psalms, many of the Psalms are horizontal in their address. Take Psalm 100, for example. It opens up with, Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. And the entire psalm is one worshiper or one worship leader, King David, presumably, or whoever's leading the worship, or maybe even a choir, addressing fellow worshipers. 
and singing to them about their privilege and their responsibility of singing to the Lord. So we're, we're singing about our need to sing. We just sang a few songs uh, that were either entirely or in part addressing one another. And, and why, why is this important? Why, Paul? Why is this a result of the Spirit filling us? Well, first, I think there's two, two reasons, I believe, at least. We need each other, the first reason, we need each other to finish well. We need each other to finish well. And the second is God's generosity to us is meant to benefit others, not just ourselves. God's generosity to you in His Son is meant to not only benefit you, but to benefit others. So we continually need exhortation toward proper worship, toward continuing in the faith, and that primarily comes through the ministry of the Word from other believers. But we also can't live the Christian life with no regard for the church for whom Christ died. Unfortunately, this is a a major problem in our, our nation where it is, for now, acceptable to worship freely. People choose not to worship with the church. And that is not consistent with the Scripture's teaching. But these two dynamics, living the Christian life and with regard and and, and for the church, cannot be divorced. If you discard one, you necessarily discard the other. If I believe that I can receive no or little help from the church, then I also must believe I am little or no help to the church. But if I do receive spiritual aid from the church, and we do, then I also exist to give spiritual aid to the church as well. You cannot divorce them. And I would argue that your devotion to God can be measured in part by the degree to which you are devoted to loving the body of Christ. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has, uh, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Jesus said it similarly in John thirteen thirty five. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Through worship, we are helped and we can help those who are with us. But it's the substance of our worship that makes that possible. So before we, we look at the terms psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we need to, we need to look at, which speak to more form and style, uh, it, we need to look at how Paul uses this word speak in the letter of, of Ephesians. The only other time he uses it in the letter is in chapter 4. In chapter 4, Paul is contrasting the old way of life against the new way of life, saying that we are to put off the old self, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and to put on the new self created after God's likeness. 
And in chapter 4, verse 25, he says, Therefore, putting away lying or falsehood, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. So then, right worship is directed toward one another. And mutually beneficial as long as the content of our worship is the truth. So, which brings us to the terms psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. If the truth is the content, then the terms psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs speak of the various forms that the truth may take. Each of these terms is used in a variety of ways, so it's difficult to distinguish clear distinctions between each one of them. The Psalms surely include the book of Psalms. These are inspired songs, prayers of David uh, and his associates. Um, These have been sung in Israel and the church for centuries. Many churches in our tradition, however, do neglect the Psalms. Uh, and We do need to do better at that. But we are not limited only to Psalms, as some might uh, purport. Many, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the term actually can also refer to any Christian song sung in public worship. So that there's, there's a variety of ways you can take it. Hymns were present in the early church. Some believe that we have several of them scattered around in the Scriptures. Mary's song, maybe the uh, Philippians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, some of these may have been early hymns or portions of hymns sung in the early church. Uh, These are often centered on Christ and His work and and ministry in the gospel, but it's difficult to know for sure which ones were actually hymns because structured poetry doesn't always equal a hymn. Spiritual songs may refer to spontaneous utterances, songs that just come, or could be songs sung in the synagogues, Uh, but even this is, these things are not certain. Again, they're, they're just... There are a variety of forms, and the the lack of clarity helps to accommodate a whole variety of forms in worship, which means that instead of thinking that this is the right way of doing it, and this is the only style of song or form of song that is truly godly and and redeemed, uh, we need to realize that as long as the truth is the content, and as long as it it is directed toward the building up of the body of Christ, then it is acceptable for worship among the body of Christ. As long as the songs are communicating the truth of God in Christ and are sung with the goal of building up the body of Christ, then they are acceptable for use in the church's worship of Christ. So herein lies wisdom for all of these worship wars that we have probably heard of um, and I'm sure we'll continue on. That this should keep us from making these hard judgments on things that the scriptures do not argue for. We need to be charitable. We need to be gracious in our critique of other songs. But there are there are many essential matters of doctrine that we must agree on. But song forms is not one of them. You may prefer Western European hymns. I think they're great. Um, You may prefer revival-style gospel songs. Those are great too. Uh, Or modern Christian rock. 
all of these are still preferences. Uh, each form has its own strengths and weaknesses. We're not going to go into all those today. Um, but a, a church's culture should be considered by pastors when choosing psalm forms. We're not going to be singing a form that is foreign to our ears. Unless, of course, it would be useful for building up the body. But we need to be gracious in our estimation of other bodies of Christ because the Scriptures give room for a variety of forms. And all the while, this keeps Christ preeminent. So continuing in verse 19, the second result of the Spirit-filled life is singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. So for those of you who struggle with keeping a tune, there's hope for you. No, <laughs> that's actually not what this is getting at. It's not accommodating poor singing. It's not even accommodating silence in singing in your heart. That's not what this is after, even though some people might like that interpretation. Sorry, Jason. Um, but we've already seen that worship is a means of exhortation. But it's also a celebration. Uh, we've you know, there, there are a few things that engage the heart's affections more than singing. Though we all can't sing well, eventually I would argue that we all must get to the point where we love singing. Even if it sounds terrible, we still ought to love it. Singing and making music with your heart captures an incredible truth about the Christian experience. When one is spirit-filled, one corresponding result is a joyful and musical act of worship involving the whole person that overflows from the heart. But what other response could there be when the triune God has made His dwelling in you? We saw in the, in the previous result that worship is horizontal and, and congregational. But here it's, it's vertical and individual, joyful and sober. And this points to one of the, the most praiseworthy qualities of, of God, how He seemingly balances in perfect harmony, uh, not seemingly, excuse me, the way seemingly opposite attributes are maintained within His person in perfect harmony. Let me explain. So God is both transcendent and imminent. Transcendent means He is so highly exalted above all things, ruling and reigning in such supreme exaltation that an approach by any lesser being is a great impossibility. Yet, God is also imminent. He is near. And saying He's near doesn't do justice to, to how near He really is. He's not just in near proximity, but He is able to take up residence within your very soul. God's vision to Isaiah captures these two extremes well. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1. This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where could you possibly build a house for me? And where would my resting place 
B, my hand made all these things, and so they all came into being. It's an impossibility. Yet, this is the Lord's declaration. I will look favorably on this kind of person. One who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. And though you might say, you know, you can look favorably from a distance, but that's not what Isaiah in the vision here is saying. The parallelism in this verse tells us that God, the favor that God bestows is the favor of making His home with the humble sinner. That's the favor that He gives. Of a transcendent God being imminent, taking up His residence. And we're not depending on mere parallelism to make the point. God's already said it before in Isaiah chapter 57. Verse 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Jesus said the exact same thing in John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And again, Revelation 3, verse 20. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Even Paul sums up God's, the balance between God's transcendence and eminence in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6. He is one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. God is holy and a friend of sinners. He is majestic and meek. He is powerful, yet personable. He is exalted, and He is humble. He is full of truth and full of grace. He is all these things and more. And just as God's nature perfectly balances various extremes so our experience of Him through His indwelling presence must take on a similar pattern of balanced extremes. True worship is congregational and individual. Horizontal and vertical. Joyful and solemn. Sweet and disturbing. Worship is all these things and more because God's nature demands them all. Worship involves the entire person just as it involves the entire congregation. Paul's mention of the heart brings several layers of meaning. In the Old Testament, the heart is the source of life issues and so it also comes to represent the whole person. What is true in the heart is true of the whole person. 
Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. The heart is like a spring, and from that spring either flows precious, life-giving fresh water or something of a more poisonous nature. Luke chapter 6, verse 45, a good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. So the question to you and I is what is overflowing from your heart? Is your heart producing songs of joy overflowing from the triune God making His home within you? Or is something of a more sinister nature bubbling up from within you? If you've never been humbled by this high and holy God, then God has not made His home with you. For you are still in your sins and destined for wrath. James 4, verse 6, But He gives greater grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. If you've never mourned over your sin and submitted yourself to God um, and, and to His offer of salvation, then He invites you now He is offering greater grace. Though your sins are many, His mercy is more. Or maybe, maybe you sat in a pew a long time and you know the lingo. You know how to make others think that you are truly a believer. And you claim to have submitted yourself to God and claim that He has taken up residence within you because that's what you're doing when you claim to be a Christian. Yet, those around you only see the reckless results of walking in folly. This high and holy God offers to draw near to you as well when you draw near to Him in humble repentance. But for the the believer, the true believer, not perfect, but growing, does the overflow of your heart reveal an increasing measure of joyful worship? Because if He's there, if the triune God has taken up residence in your heart, then He will have your entire person eventually. And your life is a straight line, though varied in progress, it is a straight line to that goal of God having supreme rule over your entire life. 
God in all His fullness has taken up residence in you, brother, sister. May that thought encourage your heart to sing. Sing to the Lord. The third result, appropriately, is giving thanks. Verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If the triune God has taken up residence in your heart, then gratitude becomes the new and glorious normal. What greater gift can God give than Himself? We sing this hymn at times, What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Of course, we can give thanks for Christ, but what about adversity? Is Paul actually expecting us to give thanks for evil? The Scriptures don't use that kind of language. We don't thank God for evil, but we are called to give thanks in and for all things. And even according, I don't know if you noticed it, but according to Paul and that hymn we just read, we can sing, all is mine through Christ indwelling in us. But what does that mean? First, we recognize both prosperity and adversity come from God. We must recognize this. Otherwise, we will continue walking in folly. I mean, we might still be a Christian, but we will walk in a measure of folly. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14 In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that no one can discover anything that will come after Him. But more specifically, it it means, when we say, all is mine through Christ in me, it means that because of Christ dwelling in our hearts, We've been given a guarantee that everything we'll be faced will be used by God to accomplish good for us according to His good will. If you haven't read Jason's article that was sent out to the church yesterday and posted to the website, I encourage you to do that soon. I'm going to quote a portion of it because I think it's helpful here in understanding how God turns suffering into a gift. Sufferings in this present life are used by God to protect us from coveting the things of this world and delivering us from the fears of this world. God uses persecution, diseases, and loss of worldly goods to properly direct our hope and will toward Him and the kingdom of His Son. To check our temptation toward hoping too much in the kingdom's goods, services, and abundance of this world. You see, there is a great danger in prosperity because it can woo you into being satisfied with this world only. 
to the neglect of a world to come. So if pain can remind me not to get too comfortable here, then now I can see how it would be appropriate to thank God for allowing that pain. But in reality, a little pain here might save us from endless pain to come. This reality is what Paul speaks of when he writes about his master plan in Christ in Ephesians chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 11, it says, In Him, that is Christ, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the One who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of His will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to His glory. And then down chapter 1, verse 20, He exercised this power in Christ by raising Him from the dead and seating Him at His right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He subjected everything under His feet and appointed Him as head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of the One who fills all things in every way. So when Paul is saying God subjected everything under Christ's feet, it means that even adversity will obey Him. Even adversity will produce the results that He designs for it to produce in your life. And so you can trust that everything you face is yours and it is for your good because it is subjected to the Lordship of Jesus Christ who reigns in supreme authority in the heavens. And it reaches every aspect of this broken and cursed world because He has taken on flesh so that He might identify with us the cause of this curse, the cause of this broken world, so that He might redeem it completely. Now, verse 20 does sound like a concluding remark, but Paul follows it with a fourth and final result of the Spirit's filling. And this final verse in verse 21 acts as a connection point to verse 22 and following. The fourth and final result, I would say, is living with wise postures. Verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. We won't spend a lot of time here because this result is going to be explained in detail in the coming weeks uh, through, throughout chapter, the rest of chapter 5. But if that's how we know what submitting to one another looks like. Now, submission is a dirty word in our culture, in our world, because partly because Authority is often misused. But there's another reason. It's because insubordination has been stitched into the fabric of the creation in every relationship on earth. We see this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. You know the story. Adam and Eve listened to the serpent. They rejected God's rule over them. 
and their eyes were open, they sinned, their eyes were open, and now comes a meeting with Daddy who is bringing the discipline necessary for such a heinous crime. And he said to the woman, verse 16, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. Notice, wives will desire to be free of their husband's authority. Husbands will abuse their authority. And even children don't even come out of the womb without much pain and kicking and screaming. And even the crops, they don't come out. They don't, they don't crop up without painful labor. Insubordination is stitched in to every part of creation. Why? Because God in His wisdom gives us a daily reminder of our own rebellion and the consequences of it. And so, He sees fit to allow us to suffer the consequences of our own insubordination through experiencing an insubordinate creation. That's why submitting to one another is such a dirty word. Add on the, the social systems and movements that our nation has popularized. But this is the reason why submission is so anathema to us. But the only way this rebellion is reversed is through willing submission to the authorities God has given, including Him supremely. Beginning with Christ, all those belonging to Christ demonstrate their repentance for the first rebellion by submitting to God-given authorities, thus giving a witness to the watching world of the only way that reversing the curse of sin is through submission to God. Paul spells this out, spells what this is, excuse me, Paul spells out what this new spirit-filled order will look like in the following verses. He doesn't say we all submit to everyone in the same way, but he does say we're all all called to submit to authorities in the way that God has ordered them. Kevin DeYoung summarizes it well. Not everyone submits to everyone, but all are called to submit to the proper authorities in their lives. And all are called to live sacrificially for the sake of others in their lives. Being spirit-filled has less to do with spontaneity and exuberance and more to do with living a life marked by the ordinary and glorious fruit of the Spirit. So, the question What is the dominant motivator in your life? Is it represented by drink, meaning darkness and folly, and resulting in reckless living? Or is are you motivated? Are you stimulated from within because the triune God has taken up residence in you? Well, if you don't know, Paul has given us instruction to know 
how you can tell. Are you speaking to one another? Are you mindful of the body of Christ, committed and devoted to them finishing well and also seeing the benefit that they are to you? Or are you leaving a destructive path? Do you grieve when you, when you give in to the flesh and you, your behaviors leave a destructive wake around you? Or are you indifferent to the pain that you cause to others through your folly? Paul has made it clear, God has made it clear that there is a drastic difference between these two internal stimuli. One leads to reckless living and death and the other leads to God taking His home, making His home with us and bringing us to Him for eternity and it transforms everything about us. There's only one King. And only by His Spirit are we enabled to be filled with the fullness of God. So may our wise living be invigorated and controlled, or prove that we are being invigorated and controlled by the full and life-giving Spirit of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we... We fail to do justice to the enormity of You making Your home in us. Lord, I pray that Your Word would open our minds and our hearts to delight in this reality, to delight in our King, to rejoice in our King, to even delight in the orders and the, the, the ordered relationships and authorities that You've given us, knowing that even when our authorities misuse their power, you are still using it and submitting it to your perfect will, creating good for us. So Lord, fill our hearts with songs, songs that encourage one another, songs that delight in what you've done for us and declare to the nations that you alone are God and in Jesus' name alone there is salvation. In his name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. At Covenant, we strive to provide a fellowship that is sound in doctrine, biblical in practice, and loving in our relationship with each other and the community. For more from our elders and teachers, please visit us at covenantbapt.org. That's covenantbapt.org for teachings, articles, and more information about our community.